Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm really delighted and honored to have each of you join us today to learn about the perils of the PERM process, and we want to share with you tips for completing the Form 9089 for the labor certification process. I'm so happy and thrilled to have with me two of our brilliant, awesome, and amazing attorneys from the PERM slash green card department at the Murthy Law Firm, Jim McLaughlin and Jessica Beaver, each of whom has years and years of experience and just focus completely, or almost completely, I should say, in, in this particular area of the law. So you're really uh, having to... Uh, discuss issues with really knowledgeable people who deal with these issues all the time. So we hope to discuss with you today, in the next 30 to 45 minutes, the hidden perils of the PERM process as it relates to the completion of the form. We'll go over some of the common issues that you as employers uh, or HR representatives may encounter while you're preparing the form or preparing to file the green card for your valued employees. And we will also hope to share with you a bunch of tips uh, on not just completion of the form, but getting those fabulous approvals, or God forbid you get an audit from the U.S. Department of Labor, how you're going to deal with that audit. So let's get started. So, okay, so the first thing, let's get started, is what is the form? The form number, as you know, is Form 9089. It is a first step in most employment-based green card cases where a labor certification is required by the employer to show that there are no ready, willing, and able workers who can perform the job for the company. What does PERM stand for? PERM stands for Program Electronic Review Management which, as you know, we can file online or by mail, but most people obviously prefer the online version. So let's get to the purpose of the labor certification, Jim. Right. As Sheila mentioned, it's really the first step of the green card process for most professionals. Um, and there's two ways to look at it. You know, as an employer and your beneficiaries look at it as the way for them to be permanently employed with your organization. Um, and it starts the road for them to get their green card. From the Department of Labor who established the program, they're looking to protect U.S. workers. So they want the employer to actually recruit for the position to make sure there are no minimally qualified U.S. workers willing and able to accept the position. And by doing so, ideally, DOL hopes to protect the U.S. workers and to make sure there aren't adverse consequences to the wages for U.S. workers. Okay. As Sheila and Jim mentioned, we're going to be going over some of these tips on how to fill out the 9089 form. One of the things that we don't normally touch base on, which we wanted to bring to your attention today, is the employer information that's in contained in Section C and D. 
When you're registering for your company, it is important to accurately register your company. Um, misspelling the name, putting the wrong entity, and re-registering could have the Department of Labor trigger a business existence in an audit or, you know, make you send in information to show that you are actually the entity that has that uh, information. Jessica, what if I'm a bigger organization and I have lots of affiliates? What do I do? You need to make sure that you know which entity is filing through or filing for the, the worker. Oh, okay. Um, in doing so, you also want to make sure that the, the employer's name is connected to the correct FEIN. Like Jim was saying, you need to make sure if you have a parent, a subsidiary, you know, affiliate, who actually is filing for the worker and make sure that FEIN also matches up. You also want to make sure that the address is up to date. Um, in doing that, it's okay if the company has moved after the ads have taken place, if it's in the same metropolitan statistical area, but before you file, you just want to accurately reflect that on the form. It's also okay if your main office is listed in this employer section, but perhaps you have a satellite office that you're actually going to use for the work location later. Similarly, you want to make sure that you, at the time of filing, make sure your employee number is up to date because the USCIS even refers to this number sometimes at the I-140 filing. One of the most important questions on this first page of the 9089 form is whether the employer is a closely held corporation partnership or sole proprietorship in which the foreign national has an ownership interest or if there's a familiar relationship between the owners, stockholders, corporate officers, incorporators, partners, and the foreign worker. This is extremely, um, extremely yeah. important. Exactly. And so the, the main thing with the familial relationship, I know there's a new FAQ, mm -hmm. a frequently asked questions section issued by the U.S. Department of Labor with their uh, interpretation and analysis, where they're stretching it way more than they've ever done before, which is can be a little bit tricky for many of you, especially if you're smaller or mid-sized companies, where you might have found the appropriate candidate because somebody in the family may have referred it or somebody may have contacted you. Hey, I understand your company is looking for jobs, and you've, the way they find out is through the you know grapevine of the family unit. And unfortunately, that could trigger an audit because it is now required to disclose a lot more information. And Department of Labor has realized that a lot of people uh, weren't clear on how much and how far the relationship was. And so most lawyers were like, if it's a parent-child, um, you know, a spouse, it, it would make a lot of sense. But other than that, it's a problem. And obviously, we I've done this over and over again, where any form of material misrepresentation, if you answer it incorrectly or improperly, is obviously a federal crime, because you're signing all these forms under penalty of perjury. Jim, you're dying to tell me something? <laughs> yeah, no, I just wanted to hop in there, because it's really important for employers to understand that this new FAQ makes clear what in DOL's point of view is a familiar relationship. And they specifically state in the FAQ, any, any relationship by blood, marriage, or adoption, even if distant, um, and this includes in-laws and step-families, um, and they specifically list out cousins of all degrees, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and grandchildren. So it's pretty broad. Hmm. But there's always wiggle room based on what you just told <laughs> me. My spouse's first cousin is not my first cousin. 
Um, and but you're right. I mean, how much do you want to go and where do you want to go? And as long as you can, you know, touch the holy book and make sure that you are comfortable. I tell people, however much you love your employees, however much you love your attorney or your family members, nobody should go to jail for someone else and provide material misrepresentation, which is considered a penalty of perjury. I feel like I don't need to preach to the choir, but yes. Right. And just because you mark yes to that question is not the be-all, end-all. What you would do is there's a case out there called Modular Container where basically you're showing that the foreign national employee has no sway, no you know management decisions, doesn't have a sway over his own position in the company, and you could still overcome that. Come that by showing the documentation if requested during an audit. That's well, that's right. very helpful because people assume that it's like the kiss of death. That if I say this, then I'm pretty much out of luck. It's gonna. It could result in an audit. It could delay the case. It potentially could get denied. But it's not necessarily necessarily so based on this modular container case, which basically says as long as there's no sway in any of the decision making issues on regarding that particular position, it's probably okay. That's right. As long as it's bona fide, good faith recruitment. Good. Excellent. Exactly. And the last point I wanted to make about this uh, information with the employer is to make sure that the contact information is up to date. In that section D is where the DOL is going to use that email or use that phone number in order to call after the labor certification is filed to verify um, the information that the labor certification was based upon. We have seen where people um, have had denials because they put an old email address or, you know, we're not answering the certain phone line. So it's always best to verify that information. Similarly, if you're using an agent or attorney, you also want that information, you know, as well. Very good. So it's really kind of interesting that something you would think is a small type or an old email address after waiting for two or three years to get the approval and audit that you could actually end up getting a denial on a perm. And many companies that do it either in-house or use lawyers without the relevant uh, that don't have a great team or great deal of experience in the perm process. Um will end up getting denials and then the people, the company will come to the Murthy Law Firm very often after a denial on a case and after spending thousands of dollars and two or three years of a person's life and the company's time and money in the process, which could all have been avoided if it was just simple. Sometimes small, simple things can can result in so much greater success. So, Jim, let's jump to you since Jessica has done a fantastic job going over the employer's information. And now we'll go to you giving us, sharing with us the general guidelines for starting to prepare the labor certification uh, uh, you know, form itself regarding the position. Okay, thanks, Sheila. So with the labor certification, it technically it's for a future position. So you have flexibility there. It can be a future position when you think the individual is going to get their green card because when they get their green card, they actually have to be in that position. And that technically, depending on where you're from, could be many years in the future. Um, but you could also sponsor them if you think in the future they're going to be in the same position they're in that they're in the H-1B position now, that's acceptable as well. Um, keep in mind with this, you can't use preferences. DOL is looking at the bare bones minimum requirements for the position. They want somebody who meets the minimum requirements and have the knowledge and ability to actually perform the basic job duties with reasonable on-the-job training. 
Um, before filing the labor, you're required to get a prevailing wage determination from the Department of Labor. And looking at the time frames, you're thinking about, you're looking right now at about two months for the prevailing wage determination. And then recruitment has to be a minimum of 60 days um, before you can actually file the labor certification. Um, and then you also have to, the forms of recruitment you have to look at, uh, for most professionals, you're looking at at least two Sundays, a notice of posting, the state workforce agency, and then three additional forms, employer website, employee referral program, local paper. That's a lot for an employer to have to kind of make sure and do right. And if any one of them is even a little bit wrong, it could just end up with the Absolutely. There, there's no room for error in this process. Yeah. And that's the thing is the perm, it's really... It's not necessarily rocket science as much as it is attention to intricate and complex nuanced details on the number of days the ads run, which day of the week, as Jim just said, it's preferable for most professional positions for Sunday newspaper ads. So if you run them on a weekday to save money, it could end up in the end wasting a lot more time and money for you as an employer or for your employees. Um, really tricky, and it's unfortunate because, uh, unfortunately, we end up getting almost all the cases are in the country when the case is denied. So I think that's we see our, more than our share of such cases. So in drafting the 1989, there's obviously like a metric system where answers to each question can become so extremely important because they're integrally interconnected with each other so that the interrelationship between the question and the answer, if there's a mismatch anywhere, it could result in it triggering an audit and ultimately a denial again of the case. So let's jump now, if we can, Jessica, back to you to discuss a little bit about the issue in Section H on the actual proffered or offered position by the employer and what do what do we mean when Jim just said minimum requirements? Because that's really annoying because an employee always comes and says, well, I have a master's in computer science. Why is the job only saying or my previous lawyer made a mistake and filed my perm incorrectly with bachelor's degree with only three years experience? And now I'm stuck with EB3 instead of EB2. Is that correct? What does this mean? Can you just go over some of the basic rules? Sure. So some of the basic things about the job opportunity, even before you get to that education and experiences, where is this job going to be performed? For some of our <clears throat> for some of our listeners out there, they are having roving employees that are going from client site to client site. You'd want to use your headquarters address and indicate the travel and relocation are appropriate for the position. Likewise, you may have a satellite office where I was telling you the main address can be listed in that Section C. It's absolutely okay to use that satellite office in Section H. Um, I've seen many attorneys, you know, do do the form, you know, in a little bit of different ways. But the most important thing is to make sure you know exactly where that work's going to be and describe the travel exactly how that position um, would entail that. We have seen when people receive audits that the DOL can question why does an employee live in one state, and, and as indicated in Section J, but the position is in a different state, but there's no travel. You may have to kind of explain that. After that, obviously, you want to have the title for the job. One thing that I have a lot of employers ask me is, you know, I have an end client that calls people, you know, programmer analyst, but internally, we want to be software engineers. 
It's important for companies to use their internal titles because this is the position that you are performing even if right now a client is calling your employee something else. That you are uh, offering to the employee. Correct, correct. This is the, the offered job for the labor certification, ultimately for the green card. Similarly, when you're talking about those actual minimum requirements like Sheila was just mentioning, it needs to be the baseline requirements for the position. These aren't preferences. These are what degree and what form of education are actually required. I often tell people that it's not just what your foreign national employee has because when you start to do that, you start to get into that narrowly tailoring. You're not just creating this position for this person. It's what does this position require. And just to explain, when Jessica said narrowly tailoring, there's actually case law that says what they call unduly restrictive requirements or tailoring a job is actually not allowed. It's a violation because you're not giving an equal and fair opportunity to other U.S. workers by saying this person needs to have A, B, C, and D. And guess what? Miraculously, the only person in the whole world who has A, B, C, and D is likely your employee who's already doing that particular work for you for the last several years. That's right. Okay. And, uh, you know, the to go along with what Sheila and Jessica are saying is, Consistency. Consistency is the key with with the labor certification process. You know, so you're looking at the basic uh, minimum requirements for a position. So, as Jessica was saying, the title. You want the title to be the actual job, the title you use in your organization. Um, and they need to be consistent across the board. So, when you're looking at consistency, you're like, okay, what is the minimum requirement I need for this position? And when you're going through the form, the form's going to ask you specifically what's required. Um, the form requires an H-5 if you need training. Training is generally uh, utilized through medical residency. Um, it's going to ask about the experience you need in the job and the degrees. You want to be as exact as possible. Um, you also can have alternative preferences, alternative degrees. Um, so say you accept a master's in five um, for your position, you can also accept a master's in three. And what does that mean when DOL looks at that? is they're looking at what they consider the SVP, or sort of it's a point value for each degree. For example, a bachelor's has two points and a master's has four points. So in each year of experience is one additional point added to that. You need to make sure that whatever your basic minimum requirement is, is consistent across the board and equivalent. Um, you also need to know if you accept a foreign degree equivalency. A lot of your employees that you may be sponsoring this got their basic education um, uh, country abroad. And you need to make sure that their bachelor's degree is equivalent to a U.S. degree. Um, if you're willing to accept, instead of just having a four-year degree to equate to a U.S. four-year degree, you're willing to accept a three-year foreign bachelor's degree, you need to be specific with that in the PERM process. Now, that may down the road change the job category from an EB-2 to an EB-3. Um, however, if that is your true minimum requirement, that is how you need to proceed. Mm-hmm. Similarly, a lot of people ask me questions, um, what does normal for the occupation mean? And that's, that's in that section H12. And the way it looks is for most job zone four occupations, which if you look on the ONET and you're looking up most professional jobs are that job zone four, is if the position requires more than a master's degree, a bachelor's in two, or four years of experience. So for those positions, the, the bachelor's in five is very typical for those EB2, EB2 cases. That would mean that it's not normal, but all you have to do is prepare that business necessity documentation 
of why your education and experience is needed for this position and be prepared to share that in the audit. Yeah, and one more thing that we often see is almost always, and I don't care whether you're a computer programmer, whether you're a medical doctor, people will say, you know what? The one way that I can easily eliminate somebody else or work with this is by focusing on the foreign language requirement. You know, the person should know Kannada or Tamil or Gujarati or Marathi. and. Uh, or Chinese or Mandarin, whatever language that they wish to use. But first of all, majority of jobs do not require a foreign language as the minimum to do the job, unless you're an interpreter or something like that, foreign language interpreter. So you really want to avoid any kind of foreign language requirement because that will in most cases result in an audit by the Department of Labor. That's right. And one thing I'd also like to add in there is the form is specific. There are certain boxes you need to check, certain areas we need to include information. But your position may not fit exactly what these boxes include and what they're asking. So luckily, there's one saving grace in the form. And with that is H14. With H14, you have the flexibility to include, um, in your words, and ideally you're working with an attorney, ideally the Murthy Law Firm, to phrase those terms correctly to make sure that it encompasses what the true position is and will not cause an issue for you later, such as including the Kellogg language when you have an alternative requirement and your foreign national is actually qualifying based on the alternative. And you know the funny thing is I remember at one time when they first came out with this whole debate or issue about the Kellogg language that any suitable combination of educational work experience you know, can be acceptable by the employer. Now there's variations. If you left out even the smallest bit in it, it could result in a denial of the case. Now there's denials for putting it in, but in the wrong context. So it looks like, yeah, simple form, a lot of checkboxes, should be easy to do. Guess what? There are literally tens and tens of thousands of cases, 50 to 80 years of case law and to memos and guidance and FAQs that will determine whether the case is going to get approved or denied. Very, very complex area. And people assume that, oh my God, you know, Murthy Law Firm being so world famous and so well known for the work, they must be way more expensive. And we, they're usually shocked when they look at our fees because it's either one of the lowest or right there in the middle. Uh, very, very reasonable, very, very competitive fees for the complexity and the nuances of the work. So something to keep in mind, I've actually had people saying to me, we didn't even get a quote from the Murthy Law Firm. And I'm like, and when they found out how much we charged, they were like, oh, my God, we would have been better than better off instead of wasting the money, getting a denial, losing two, three, four, five years, and now coming to you and paying less than we paid the person down the road that had no idea what they really were doing for the perm. Okay, so now let's jump to the recruitment issue. So recruitment is found in Section I of the 9089 form. And when you're doing recruitment, like Jim said earlier, you're doing those two Sunday newspaper advertisements, the state workforce agency um, of the area where the employee is going to work, the internal notice of posting, and then three of the additional forms of recruitment. The most important thing about this section is to make sure you accurately represent the recruitment that was conducted. Because as we know, this is an attestation process. You're filing the form online. But in the event of that audit, then you're going to be showing all the documentation for these advertisements. You want to make sure, like I said, that all the dates are accurate, and it's also accurate the types of recruitment that you conducted. Some of the questions below the recruitment 
ask about payment for any kind of submission for the application, which we will touch base upon because it is such an important issue. But also if the notice of posting was properly posted, if there's no bargaining representative, and if a layoff has occurred in the previous six months. The the payment for the application is very important because you're signing under penalty of perjury that you the employee has not paid for the labor certification. Yeah, and I know a lot of companies, especially smaller companies, tell the employee, no problem, we'll pay, but you can pay us back. And, and that clearly, as you just heard from Jessica, is not legal. So for those of you who are doing it, you know, I tell people, whatever we do, we need to be careful that we don't do anything that gets us in jail. Because great as America is, the land of opportunity, the land of milk and honey, the nation of immigrants, we don't want, it is also a nation of laws, which follows the rule of law. So please, please be extra careful not to do something that could get you into trouble and ruin your life and your family's life. For, for literally just a few, you know, two or $3,000. I mean, you know, at least if you're going to do it for something that's earth-shattering, it makes sense. But for a few thousand dollars for each employee that hopefully will stay with your company for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, if you treat them right and do things right, um, you know, we're all in this together and we want to make it a win-win for the employees and the employer. That's right. And um, to go further with what Jessica is saying with layoffs is, not only are you testing the labor market for any willing and able U.S. workers, but if you had a layoff within the six months immediately preceding the filing of labor certification, you also have an obligation to reach out to those U.S. workers that you laid off. Um, and the, the workers you need to contact, generally speaking, are if the, in the area of intended employment, if those workers, um, it's an the occupation involved in the labor certification or related occupation. And with related, they're referring to a majority of the essential job duties. Now, you, the Department of Labor also issued an FAQ similar um, uh, that we were discussing earlier with uh, laid-off workers, and they actually say the employer must, upon laying off any U.S. workers, obtain their most recent contact information. At the same time, inform the laid-off U.S. worker that if there is any change to their contact information, they it's upon the former employee uh, to inform that employer of that contact information. Now, if there, you're going to be filing a labor certification for someone who fits this definition of the occupation or a related occupation, you need to send an email, contact them, call them, send their mail, whatever recent contact information you have for them to deter- with the full job description asking if they're interested to apply. And that maybe that's part of the reason why a lot of employers, if they've had a layoff, they decide it's sometimes easier because if you fail in some small technical issue, you could end- again end up getting a denial. So what a lot of companies then do is if they've had a layoff in a particular occupation or related occupations, they say, sorry, we cannot start the, per- the perm for you. Uh, employee, even if your six years are getting over on your H-1 because we had a layoff and the company policy is we cannot and will not file any PERM applications for a minimum of six months after that layoff has happened to try to avoid running afoul of this rule. Okay, so that's, I mean, so that's the trick. And, and, And there's also, isn't there also a new FAQ 
about notification to the U.S. workers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in addition to that FAQ, they also say if you're an employer who files lots of labor certifications, your obligation is even higher. Um, one of the advantage, advantages is you don't have to contact each worker individually, but at once a month, you have to send um, some sort of communication to all your laid-off U.S. workers telling them to check your website for recent postings. Oh, Once wow. a month at a minimum. For them that they need to check the website. That's right. That's scary. Okay, so let's go now to Section J on the Form 1989. And I think Jessica had just mentioned that a few minutes ago when we were talking about that section because that section lists the qualifications of the employee or the beneficiary and how that person that we're sponsoring as the employer actually meets the minimum requirements, meets or exceeds the minimum requirements for that position. So obviously the person must show how that person qualifies, but not at any time, not not after working with you for three years or four years or five years that, that they now meet the five-year BS plus five, but they should meet it ideally at the beginning of the process and before we start drafting the form so that we can strategize and really be tactical and strategic when we complete the application. Exactly, Sheila. You don't want to be running recruitment for a position for which your foreign national is not going to qualify for. So, for example, in that Section J, one of, uh, besides the biographic information of the employee, is about the education, the highest level achieved as required by the requested job opportunity. So, for example, let's say your foreign national employee has five degrees. Maybe they have one, you know, in chemistry or music, something that's not going to be related to the position that you're offering them. Then, of course, then they would just list their highest degree that's relevant to the position. Similarly, as you go through, um, you'll be listing, like I said, the highest education. And then you come to a series of questions. What I'm referring to is J17 through 21, when basically you're showing how the employee how the employee qualifies for the position. So for example, in 17, they're referring back to that training question that you said, whether or not there was training in H5, as goes through all the questions relating back to that education and experience. So for example, if you have a master's position with no experience, all of these questions would be not applicable because they're not doing training or any type of experience or there's also not an alternate for that position. But I thought if there was a master's with no experience, then it ought, almost always automatically triggered a Department of Labor audit because their uh, their attitude is, hey, to the extent that there's any unemployment in America, that means every fresh master's student graduate from any U.S. university or anywhere in the world can just come in and apply for that, and you can't deny it based on the minimal qualifications. The Department of Labor actually released a little bit of information about their tiers of audits, and for degrees in which there is no experience, it's a 50% audit rate. So it's not the end-all the end-all be-all by any means, especially as the Department of Labor is routinely, randomly auditing cases. Okay. Jessica, can I, can I use on-the-job experience to qualify? Well, like Sheila was saying, it's ideal that your foreign national has gained the education and experience prior, prior to joining your company. But if they have not and they want to use experience with your company, it needs to be at least 50% different what they're performing now and the job that you want to sponsor them in. 
The USCIS, which is actually looking at that I-140 petition at the second part of the green card process, is really scrutinizing this factor of using experience only game with the employer. So it's very important to look you know, ahead of time. What is the worker doing now? What could they be doing? And is it, you know, substantially comparable or about 50% different in the duties? Right. right. And one of the questions that I often get when I'm doing my consultations uh, here at the multi-law firm is, um, you know, it'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, I have a master's plus three years even before I joined the employer. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, fantastic, great case. And then casually they will say something like, oh, but by the way, I gained the master's. I gained the experience before, but the master's I just gained with this employer who actually paid for my um, tuition for me to go through the master's because it helps the company and the business. And so that's obviously a red uh, red uh, flag that automatically you as an employer needs to consider because um, the, 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 the rule generally is that if every single person in the business or in the company has their education paid for by you as the employer, then you can put yes, and it will unfortunately still show up in the audit. Uh, if the employer only paid for the foreign national and for nobody else, then it's not really going to be okay because as the employer, we need to show that we're offering the same terms to U.S. workers as to the foreign national that's fair and comparable. That's right. And I want to throw in one additional thing, which infeasibility to train. That is something else employers can use to utilize their on-the-job experience. However, the bar for that is significantly high, so it's advisable to talk to your attorney if you're going to consider utilizing that option. And I just wanted to mention the U.S. master's degree only because I, I especially think of our clients from India that, they ha- that have those three-year Bachelor of Commerce, those other three-year mm-hmm, degrees. Mm-hmm. They're unfortunately not able to qualify for EB2 because they don't have the equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's. So for a lot of strategy purposes, it, people want to go and get their U.S. master's. And that's when I caution people, make sure it's from an accredited institution in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and make sure your employer doesn't pay for it. Mm, Absolutely. Very good points. I mean, little things that you can end up, I guess, uh, tripping over if you're not very careful about it. Okay, so let's jump, Jim, to the Section K on the form regarding the person's work history. Okay, this is almost the end of the form. You've, you've, you've made it. You've made it this far. You've been following our guidance, and hopefully you're going well. Now, Section K, what a lot of employers have run into trouble is they may not list everything that's required. Section K is your work history, but it's not only your work history, it's however the individual is qualifying for the position. So any certifications, any licenses. Say you're specifically requiring some sort of knowledge or ability um, that is not directly in the work history, but somebody obtained it through their education. You want to list that here. Um, And some require... Sometimes you may require more than one degree. You want to list the second degree in this section as well. Okay. Um, And, of course, we've talked about the declarations a couple different times about penalty of perjury. And there was one more thing I think sometimes people will try to use something like a combination of occupations because it's not really one or the other. And um, sometimes that can come back with a much higher prevailing wage determination and often will also require like a business necessity letter, separate letter, uh, and the chance of an audit or the risk of an audit is much greater. And the way that you can tell if it's a combination of occupations is from that prevailing wage determination. So you don't have to, you know, think of it yourself. The Department of Labor will, in fact, indicate 
to you, whether it's not a combination of occupations. I also just want to mention, although we've been talking about signing under the penalty of perjury, we have seen the USCIS many years later sent notice of intent to denies, going over people's work history, going over things that were put in a form, you know, many years earlier. And so you want to make sure that you carefully review this form and that any documentation that you have, you know, from these companies or from your education matches up to what's on the form because you don't want to create all these inconsistencies for you where the government will try to say that you are, you know, participating in fraud. Yeah, and, and it may not even just be immigration paperwork. You may even be listing your title of your position on your tax forms. The USCIS can data mine and they can find that. So really consistency is very important. Absolutely. And sometimes... The attention to detail is so critical on especially this form, and it can impact you for years and decades to come, uh, not just until you get your green card. We have even seen cases where they come back in citizenship sometimes and ask people. Recently, I had a consultation where the person said something they had mentioned on the green card application form came back where the, employ where the interviewing officer said, there's a mismatch between what you filled out on your citizenship as your title, your profession, your where you worked, your company's name. Just I tell people, be consistent. Consistency is key. And they, with computers and database and technology and the Internet, a lot of information is available online. You have to be extremely careful. Being very mindful of your time that we try to keep these discussions between 30 to 45 minutes, and we're right around 35 minutes now. We want to take this opportunity to thank you again for joining us, uh, we, to stress to you how important it is to understand the nuances and the complexities, as you can see from this detailed discussion with Jim McLaughlin, Jessica Beaver, and myself, Sheila Murthy, who are constantly dealing with these sorts of issues in our work or in consultations that we get. It would be a real honor and a pleasure for us at the Murthy Law Firm to continue to help you and your company taking care of you and taking care of your back when you are not clear on the complex and ever-changing rules dealing with the PERM process. Um, we, As you've seen, minor issues and triggers can result in an audit or a denial. And so we really look forward to continuing to help you, taking great care of you, and we wish you a fabulous summer and have a great day. Thank you on behalf of myself, Jim, Jessica, and everyone here at the Murthy Law Firm. Have a great day. Bye-bye.